Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. So it's almost Christmas, and we've already done our Christmas gift guide. And if you haven't heard it, you got to go back and listen to it because it's really good. We found some really good gifts. We're going to take a little bit of time off, so we will not have an episode coming out on Christmas Eve, which would have been our normal period. And our next episode after this one will be uh, January 7th or something like that. And in this episode, Jeff picked this topic that really kind of doesn't interest me, but I kind of have a feeling <laughs> at the end of the episode, it will be more interesting. We we did an episode a couple of years ago about the B word, about background blur, right? And I can't remember. What was that word? I can't remember. I don't, I don't remember what the word was. I know that we just banned <laughs> it from this show. Um, but background blur is the term that was used back in the day of film. It's the fact that when you're focused on something with a shallow depth of field, what's in the background will not be in focus. And this can be good and it can be bad. Um, curiously, I was looking into the whole hyperfocal distance thing recently to use with my Leica Q2 monochrome. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that at a certain... Uh, point where the, where the lens is focused in a certain distance, according to the aperture of the lens, everything from that distance and further is in focus. And it's a way to walk around with a camera, particularly if you're doing street photography, and not mm -hmm. have to worry about focus all the time. And so focus is one of those things that can be a problem, and it can also be a feature Yes, that's a really good way of putting it, because there are times when you want everything in focus. Landscape photographers are typically, they want as much in focus as possible because you're you're trying to get that landscape. Uh, but there are also many times when you want to control the focus so that, say, especially with portraits, that's the easiest example, but it's not the only example, where you want the person to be the main show in, in your image and the stuff that's behind them is not as important. And so one way to do that to isolate the person is to set a really high aperture like F 1.4 or even F 1.2. And that blurs the background and gives you that sort of nice, soft, buttery look that, is good for portraits and sometimes it's also good for like product photography. You'll see it a lot in, in that. And just to do a quick recap, the way to control that in the camera is using different F-stops. So the wider open the lens, F1.8, F1.4, the more blur you're going to get. And the tighter the lens, the aperture so F8 or even F16, you're going to have more stuff in focus. You started by saying the higher the aperture, but it's the lower the aperture. It's the wider open the aperture. See, it's the problem with the f-stop is the lower number is wider open. It would make sense if it was the opposite, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Higher, wider, bigger, smaller, they all... And because then we talk about slower and faster, right? A fast lens uh, yes. has a, a, <laughs> a larger aperture with a lower maximum f-stop. 
So yeah. it's a little bit confusing. The thing about this, though, is there's always a trade-off when you have a lens, a fast lens with a, a wide aperture between mm -hmm. the amount of light that comes in and the sort of degradation of the lens in the corners. Um, generally, your lens is sharpest at about two f-stops up from its widest aperture. And so if you want to take sharp photos, you shouldn't be using the f1.4 or 1.8. You should be up around f4 to be comfortable. Yeah, I would say that's that's a good general rule of thumb. Um, again, you know, of course, it, it depends on what you're shooting. But oftentimes, if you're shooting a portrait, and we're going to focus mostly on portraits for, for this discussion. I'm sure you've seen pictures where someone will shoot a photo of somebody and uh, it's, it's at f 1.4 or f 1.2 and you get a really nice soft background and that's the effect that it's going for but you look closely and because it's such a shallow depth of field their ears might be out of focus or or their nose depending on you know the the distance if you're trying to get their eyes in focus and so when you're shooting at such a wide aperture it becomes really difficult to control that and then it makes sense to maybe shoot at like f2.8 or f4, where you get them in focus and you still have a good separation from the background. But it gets more complicated than that, because if you have a wide angle lens, then there's more going to be in focus than if you have a, a, a longer lens. So longer is a higher number of millimeters, so like a telephoto. And mm -hmm. that's why people who shoot a lot of uh, portraits, they want to use a longer lens, often um, so we're using Fujifilm, it'd be like a 50 or 60 or an 80 millimeter, which is equivalent of what, a 75 to 100 yeah. on uh, a DSLR. And the, the, the sort of compression you get with the longer lens, the telephoto lens versus the, the, the way that with a wide angle lens, the background seems to be closer means that with my, again, my um, Leica, a 28 millimeter lens, I can be shooting at f2.8 and still have a lot of depth of field, which is really surprising. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know a lot of portrait photographers, their go-to lenses are right around maybe 100, 110. And you get one that's that's probably f2.8. And that gives you a lot of light. Right, because the longer the lens, the higher the maximum aperture f-stop number. So the biggest yeah. aperture can't be – if you wanted to have an f1.4 on a 100-millimeter lens, you wouldn't be able to carry the lens, basically, because <laughs> it's be all huge. about physics. Yeah. 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 Physics Physics is really kind of a it's, problem in photography, right? <laughs> but mean, see, the thing is, now with AI, we can defeat physics, can't we? Well, see, now, the, that's exactly the point. So, so everything we've mentioned so far is this dance, this trade-off of how much light you're going to have – coming into the camera, how much softness you want in the background, what lens you have, what your lens is capable of, whether or not somebody is close to the camera or whether you're standing far away with a telephoto. You know, I, I mean, I think just in the last four minutes, we've covered 50 different possible combinations and situations. And if you're shooting portraits a lot, you probably use maybe one range or one combination or, or a couple of combinations, there's an aspect of this that becomes a lot more uh, built in and natural. But every time, you're still having to do these calculations. So 
What's interesting about where we are now in photography is you now have the possibility to let software do a lot of this. And that's really what we're going to talk about here, answering the question, why would you do this in camera when you can just do it after the fact in something like Luminar or Photoshop or even using your iPhone and shooting in portrait mode? Okay, but I think the most important question is why should you even blur a background? Why should you shoot photos with blurred backgrounds? I know there is justification, but I see photo groups that people are just so happy that their backgrounds are so blurry, but the photos are ugly. That they're they're not well lit. They're just they're focusing on those little you know the little lights that make little bubbles in the background. I think it's <laughs> I think I think background blur can can be a cheap effect when it's done. Um, kind of like HDR photos, right? Where there's just a little bit too much. Um, I think when it's done carefully, it can be very nice. I think when there's too much of a background blur, it starts to get weird. And I think a lot depends on the background. Pay more attention to what the background is than getting the background blurred. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is also a case where sometimes people will go really blurry in the background because they need to hide what's in the background. Yeah. One, I think, positive use for this, let's say you are against a row of trees or something and it's winter and you don't have any foliage. If you're shooting at like, say, F8 or F9, you're going to see those pretty clearly. And then you're fighting your composition. So you have the person in front and then you have the trees in the back and then you've got branches coming out of their heads and the viewer doesn't really know where to look. By blurring that background, you give the viewer an immediate focal point because they're, they're looking at the thing that's in focus. Now, a lot of this really is an artistic choice. And I personally like nice soft backgrounds. I think we, we diverge here. But as with everything, sometimes it's done really, really well. Sometimes it's just not done well at all. Sometimes you can see that somebody was just playing and shooting wide open and what they have in focus is, you know, a little clump of dirt or something. <laughs> everything in the foreground is blurry and everything in the background is blurry and you're like, "Well, okay, good. You spent a lot of money on a on a on a really good wide open lens." Yay. <laughs> well, background blur works works really well with macro photography, flowers, oh, definitely. Uh, insects and stuff like that because that's an area where your background tends to be the natural background as opposed to a person in a position in a city, in a in a forest whatever. Um, I like to use that a lot when I'm doing flower photos or when I'm doing macro photos, but mm -hmm. it's different because you're often you're, – you're almost trying to get rid of the background there. You need the background to be natural, but you don't care what it is. It's not like, it's not like a set for a person, right? Yeah, exactly. And also I think just when we're shooting macro, the lenses that we're using really aren't set up to be deep focus lenses. Um, I mean, you, you can shoot at like F8 or whatever, but when you're focused on something really tiny, you're still going to get that blur regardless of, of of what aperture you're at just because of, of the scale and just the nature of macro photography. I haven't done a whole lot of macro photography, but oftentimes someone is not going to shoot wide open because then you have 
you know, s- such a, a very small sliver of the the focal plane that it, it ruins the effect. Or if you're trying to do focus stacking, you want to shoot at, say, maybe F4 because then you don't have as many pieces to combine. Okay. Here we are talking about all the different variations yeah. in, in, in lenses and stuff. So what if, what if you could just say, you know what, I really want that background blur effect, but I don't want to have to figure out which lens and which aperture, uh, or maybe I don't have a lens that, that can do that. So that's or maybe you want to shoot at f8 because you can be sure that you're getting the whole face and focus from the nose to the ears, or you're getting the whole flower or bird, and then you worry about it afterwards, what the background's going to look like. That's exactly the point, because where before you had to make these choices while you were shooting, and now we have the ability to make some of those choices after the fact. If you look and you realize this would look much better if this background was slightly blurry, even like it doesn't even have to be the super hyper focus bokeh. Oh, I said it. What? Oh, you said the word. I said. Uh, <laughs> put, put 10 bucks in the swear jar. <laughs> so in the processing stage, we can add that or if it was shot with a depth effect, say, on the iPhone, we can manipulate that. So what we're going to talk about here is how we can get those effects, why you might want to do it, and we'll have some examples in the show notes. This is definitely going to be an episode where you want to go to the website and take a look at what we're seeing, or if you have a podcast player that displays images, make sure you look at the screen because uh, these images will pop up. Okay, you talked about manipulating the photos. So this is trickery. Is that it? Oh, yes. It's absolute trickery. This is dishonesty. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay, I want to I ask you a question now. So yeah, we're yeah. going to talk about – we've talked about the iPhone's portrait mode. We'll have a link in the show notes to the episode. The iPhone's portrait mode uses a depth map to um, find where the subject is in relation to the background. Yes. Now – uh, I think Pixelmator Pro just came out with an update that like automatically selects a background so you can erase it, which is really brilliant. I tried it on a few photos mm, and even yeah. with cats, it works very well. Mm-hmm. What I want to know is why should you even bother going through this process when you can take a photo of a person anywhere, let's say in a studio or anywhere, remove the background and then put whatever background with whatever blur you want into that photo? Well, I think the answer is the amount of work you want to put in and how you want it to look. So in most cases, I think most people aren't going to want to go in and and replace backgrounds and and do all of that. You're taking a picture of somebody in the place where you want them to be. Now, maybe a tourist walked into the frame or something like that. Uh, But but that's that's those damn tourists. They're always walking into the frame. They're always walking into the frame. And so, what you can do is take a look at that picture, and you say, "This would be a really good picture. That this person's expression is exactly what I wanted, but the background is just a little bit too much in focus, and so right. it's really distracting." There's a there's a street sign over their shoulder, and maybe you were focused on them while you were taking the shot, and you weren't focused on the background, or maybe you have another shot that is set at a wider aperture and has the right blur, but it's not the the expression that you wanted. Again, 
I keep like hitting all these like like different examples and exclusions. Well, yeah, it is it it is a, a complex question when you get down to it. If you're just doing a headshot of someone, right? You don't have any foreground to worry about. You've got the background, but as mm -hmm. you say, you could to, you could turn yourself a couple of degrees in either direction, and the background's going to change. Did you maybe shoot that with the horizon line just at their neck, which looks really strange? Mm -hmm. um, did you just shoot it with a stop sign that looks like it's coming out of their head because it's behind <laughs> them? There are all sorts of possibilities. And yeah. I'm going to add one more. There's not just background blur. There's also foreground blur. Um, we won't get into too much detail, but I'm going to put a photo in our folder. You can put in the show notes, the photo of my cat, Rosalind, that I took um, April. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting photo. I was at ground level with my Fujifilm XC4, I think. And I got a photo where she is really sharp, but the foreground is blurred and the background is blurred. And the background is distracting. I would have liked to maybe not have all of that background there. But sometimes you're going to get a photo with a person where you're going to have foreground and background. So Yeah. So here's where we get into having that choice later. Because typically you take that shot with your camera and that's the shot. You're not going to be able to change the blur because that's that's how the scene was recorded. Now, let's switch over away from uh, like a traditional camera and go to the iPhone and it's portrait mode. So what portrait mode does is it does the depth map, like you said, and it blurs the background. And in, I would say, most cases, it looks pretty good. They've actually come quite a ways with the, the portrait mode, just the individual shooting picture portrait mode since it was first introduced. And it was first introduced several years ago. It was the iPhone 8, wasn't it? I think it was right or about eight, then. Or 8 yeah. Plus or 8 – I think it was only the 8 Plus originally. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. So so it's it's a technology that has advanced over what say I guess that would be 5 or 6 years in order to just get subtly better and better. And there there are things on the internet, there are YouTube videos where people compare the the shape of the light effects in the background and whether the background is actually blurred or if it looks like it was blurred with an aperture like like a bladed aperture that you would have on on most cameras. But here's the thing. When you took that picture with your iPhone, so an iPhone doesn't have any aperture control. An iPhone has just one aperture because it's trying to get everything in focus. And because it's such a small sensor and a small lens, you tend to have a deeper depth of focus just by the nature of it. So it's very hard to get this soft background effect. So that's why portrait mode was invented so that they could make this look in a small camera format. Right, because it's it's a combination of a very wide-angle lens, even the normal lens, not the ultra-wide, is a wide-angle yeah. lens, and a, a very wide-open aperture, which is not ideal for actually getting portraits. Exactly. But when you think of portraits, and this is a stylistic thing over the last several years— a lot of portraits have that soft look. And especially for people who are not, quote unquote, photographers or discerning photographers, they see that that slightly blurred background and it just it looks more like a, quote unquote, portrait. And so people want that effect. Right. So this is like the Instagram effect, right? Because people... It kind of is. 
people are trying to create an effect that they've seen, which may have been made with a normal camera, you know, DSLR, mirrorless, whatever, with a long lens mm-hmm. and, a, and a wide open aperture, as we discussed earlier. And so they're trying to emulate this on a tiny, tiny, tiny little camera with a miniature sensor. Right. But they're using AI, which means that they can do all sorts of things regardless of what the lens is. Yes, exactly. So you get to your software later and you're looking at the picture and you think, wow, I really wish this was more blurry or less blurry. And the beauty of this technology is you can just go in and edit it. And if it's a portrait mode image, that depth map is saved. And so the the Photos app can change the simulated aperture behind the person. It's a simulated f4.5 aperture, which is a nice degree of blur, uh, but you can still make out what the background is. Well, you can go in, you tap edit, and there's a little f, I think it just says f4.5. You tap that, and then you can choose, you drag a slider and choose what you want from f1.4, I think, up to f16. Now, if you crank it all the way up to f16, that's what the camera recorded. And everything up to that is the simulation. And it's not really F16. It's what an F16 aperture would have done on a normal lens in normal situations. So it's a shorthand in a way. Exactly. In terms of iPhones and other smartphones, the aperture is typically like an F1.8 or F2 just because it needs that light gathering ability, but it doesn't have any effect on, on the depth of field. You have this ability to then say, I really want this to look softer. And so maybe you, you switch that to F1.4. Or what will happen a lot, if you have a picture that doesn't look as good soft, well, you just increase the quote-unquote F-stop, maybe make it F8 or F5.6 or something like that, and that will oftentimes make the image better. And when I say better, basically, when you make it really blurry, that's when you start to see more artifacts. You see the limitations of where the depth map didn't catch hair, for example. Well, not so much. So you've got a bunch of photos that you're going to put into the uh, show notes, and, and you yeah. have a portrait of yourself um, from F16. You've got F16, F8, 5.6, 2.8, 1.4. The F-16, unfortunately, the camera focused on the background instead of on you. Well, so you get the foreground blur. Actually, in that case, so all of those were shot with my Fuji X-T3. and Oh, okay. Sorry. I had it set at auto aperture, basically aperture priority. Everything else was automatic so that I could get a pretty consistent exposure. And right. at F-16, the shutter speed was, I think, 1.2 seconds, and I moved. Right. So if we if we look at those to compare the differences in background blur, let's ignore the F-16. Um, yeah. F-8 looks more like a normal photo. I'd say it looks like a snapshot. You've shot this in your living room. You've got Christmas lights and a painting behind you. It's actually a good example of a background that's not really good that you might want to get out of the way, right? Yeah. So the the F8 looks okay. The F5.6, you start to see a little bit of blur. At F2.8, the blur to me is almost excessive. And at F1.4, it looks almost ridiculous. Because when you're thinking of the context of this type of photo, indoors, it doesn't make sense. If it was outdoors, it would make more sense. 
Okay, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just telling you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, no, for, no. For me, the 5.6 looks best, the 2.8, okay. That is completely valid. Um, one of the reasons that I, I chose this spot was because it had the Christmas lights in the background. Some, uh, yes, some, because some, some actual objects, because you get that. When, when people review cameras and lenses, they like to take pictures of lights to show the shape of the light of the, from the background blur, from the, the, aperture, ap- yeah. the, the aperture, the blades and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. What, what I find interesting is, so you did one iPhone photo and you don't have any, it doesn't look like there's any, uh, or there's a very, very tiny blur. So you must've done a normal portrait mode and there's a very slight blur behind it. And that looks okay. And then you have another photo where you took the same, uh, picture and took it into Luminar and it looks horrible because <laughs> Luminar didn't detect – see, the iPhone should have the depth map and Luminar should be able to read the depth map. But Luminar is not detecting your hair as well. So it looks like someone cut you out and pasted you onto the background in that photo. Yeah, a little bit. So for whatever reason, Luminar does not look at the depth map that the iPhone created. Oh, okay. So it's – it's using its AI to figure out where the subject is and then make its own depth map and and work with that. So Luminar AI has this portrait bouquet feature, and it's trying to do in software what the iPhone is doing in portrait mode. Now, the iPhone has that advantage of having the, the sensors to create a better depth map, and it has dedicated hardware toward making that happen. And so when you're trying to do it completely in software, uh, I would say in some cases it can look very good. And there are lots of controls where you can change the color of the background. You can set what the amount of the of, of the bouquet is. You're saying that word again. I know. <laughs> Come on, drop money in the swear jar now. Somebody has to say it. All I'm doing is repeating the name of the feature. That's all. But it's not the name of the feature. It's called background blur. That's the real word. So... But yes, I get you, I get your point. I, I yeah. want to just look at the three iPhone portrait mode pictures you have. So you have one at F16, mm-hmm. you have one at F4.5, you have one at F1.4. And for me, the Goldilocks there is the 4.5. There's blur. There's almost a bit of fogginess in the background. Um, but mm-hmm. the 1.4 almost looks artificial because it's too blurry. And you, if you look at the sort of lock of hair that's coming out of your part that you can see in the 16 and the 4.5, the 1.4 has erased it. So yeah, even the iPhone, the more it blurs, the more it, it blurs those edges around people. And those edges are generally going to be in hair. And depending on the person, um, it could look really artificial when their locks of hair just get erased. Yeah. It's it's good that they have the ability to make it super blurry if you want, but usually when you get to this end, you're going to see a lot of artifacts, and it, it's going to pop immediately as, oh, this is a fake background. Um, yeah. the, the, the F4.5 is what the portrait mode shot by its default, and I think that looks actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, th- I think for most people, you would not be able to tell that this was an iPhone shot compared to, you know, a, a a background blur using a regular camera. Yeah. The the F16 all I did was take that same shot and just cranked it up so this is almost straight out of out of camera with with no effect applied at all. Yet it looks like the background is out of focus a bit. 
it is just a little bit out of focus because there's also an image that uh, where I shot just in, in the regular mode, not the portrait mode. And there you can see everything, me and the background and the, and the lights, even the trees outside through the window are in pretty good focus. Right. Um, so, so I think that the, the takeaway here is because we're, we're, we're talking about AI and this follows up on our recent episode about the future of AI and cameras. I think what we need to realize, we were talking before we started recording, in the future, you won't need a lot of the expensive lenses anymore because of things like this. This is going to get better. If this is only about five years old. Yeah. We haven't seen camera manufacturers do much with this because that's not their that's not what they know how to do, right? Right. Um, right. We haven't seen a mirrorless or DSLR, which includes like a LiDAR camera to do the depth mapping. I bet we will see that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to work with software. So a camera manufacturer will have to work with, say, Adobe to plan this uh, in order to make – to make it a package, whereas the iPhone can do this with Apple's own software. But what I find interesting is that we're at the point now, and I mentioned Pixelmator Pro, you can wipe out a background easily and replace it. Lots of software can replace skies because skies are relatively easy to delimit, right? Right. I, I think, and again, Pixelmator Pro with their super image resizing, I forget what it's called, um, you can take an image and you can boost the pixel size without losing detail. Um, How I, the camera app, has a macro mode, even for cameras like prior to the iPhone 13, which don't have the so-called macro mode Mm -hmm. that can get really interesting detail. And a lot of this is machine learning and AI that's basically figuring out what should be there if you had a better lens. And I think we're on the cusp of changes where maybe you'll only need one lens. Maybe... Okay, there's a difference between a long telephoto lens and a macro lens, but maybe in the middle, that 50 millimeter standard lens can do everything from a wide angle to, say, the 100 millimeter equivalent because the software can work all this out. Yeah. Just looking at at how portrait mode has advanced from when it was first introduced, it's come a long way to the point where, as we just did, we looked at that f4.5 simulated image and we said that looks like it could come from almost any camera. And it was only when you started exaggerating it that the the artifacts and the artificiality came through. Now, at the beginning, you could almost always tell which was a portrait mode image and which one uh, was not. And so so that's that's really come a long way. Processing is you know continuing to improve. I think one of the the curious things about this is, it makes absolute sense for the camera manufacturers to try to do some of this, at least from a from a, a consumer point of view, because, yeah, it would be great if I just had one lens. Or let's say I have a little small camera that has a built-in fixed lens. I can't get a new lens for it. I don't want a whole lens system. I want to still have all these options. The problem is camera companies want to sell lenses and they want to sell cameras. And I'm sure that part of their thinking is, why should we invest all this research into making fake background blur when we have this lens here that may not even be very expensive? Here's this F2 lens that will give you what you want. So there's definitely a struggle there, but I can't imagine that there's not going to be a future where these features start 
creeping into traditional cameras. Even if the idea isn't to make some awesome background blur, any camera with depth mapping information can be really useful. I don't remember the name of that camera that came out a few years ago that would like shoot a whole bunch of things and then you could change the focus. The Lytro, I think. Lytro. Now, yeah. I don't know anything about it other than it failed in the marketplace, but yep. it seems like it's possible that perhaps we'll have cameras that can capture everything with depth mapping and other sorts of technology to allow you to change the focus, kind of what you can do when you're shooting a, a video now um, on the iPhone, that we'll be able to do that in other types of camera. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely going to be some catching up from the camera manufacturers to the smartphone capabilities. As you say, they want to sell lenses, but if they want to stay relevant in the future, um, they are going to have to do something. You know, imagine a fixed lens camera like a Fuji X100 series um, that that offers more possibilities. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think this is something to consider going forward for the camera companies. So Cam Fuji, if you're listening, that's the kind of thing. Make an X100 with 35 millimeter lens. That's a 50 millimeter equivalent. And that gives you more latitude in both directions, longer yeah. and shorter. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Jeff, what's your snapshot? My snapshot is super exciting. It is a battery. When I got my Fuji X-T3, I bought a few extra batteries. And I bought some the, the, uh, batteries from a company called Wasabi. And they are perfectly fine. I've had them for a few years, but now they don't hold mu as much of a charge. And they're inexpensive. And they're fine. Um, one or two of them have started to swell a little bit. So you know, not super high quality, but also it's not like buying the Fuji battery, which can be $60. So I was looking for something else. So I found another battery company that are slightly more expensive called Green Extreme. Now, of course, you're going to have to find whether they have one that matches your camera. The batteries that I bought were not very expensive at all. Uh, they're about $20. I'm looking at Amazon now. They're at like $15 a piece. But I found that, that they did a really good job of holding in charge. Um, they are rated at 1,260 milliamps, uh, 9.3 watt hours. Basically a good amount of battery power. And when I was on a recent photo trip, I did not have to swap batteries as much. So when you go to order batteries, you can fall into a nasty rabbit hole of trying to find which ones to get and looking at reviews. So I'm going to put forth this green extreme and they do a good job and they're not super, super cheap and at least so far, are lasting a good a good long duration before I have to swap it out. Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, I first want to mention that um, when you buy a Leica camera, you're not going to be able to use third-party batteries. Um, the Leica Q2 battery sells for about 120 pounds, and there are no third-party versions of it. There's a Leica Q and Q2. And I think for a lot of other Leica cameras, it's the same thing. There are some where there are third-party models, but not too many. Um, my um, my snapshot is really boring as well. It's a glass screen protector. Um, I had a one-hour Zoom chat with someone from Leica about two weeks ago, and they do this a while after you get the camera 
to help you get to know the camera, ask if you have any questions. And uh, the person who I spoke with is a young woman who's a photographer who works for the Leica online store. And I told her beforehand, well, I know pretty much how to use the camera. I'm just looking for any tips you can give me. And at one point I was saying, yeah, I used to put I put screen protectors on my Fujifilm cameras, but I didn't want to put one here because it's glass and I'm not worried. And she said, oh, well, I'll tell you, when we get these back, when we've lent them out, they lend them for the weekend. When we get them back, they're often scratched. So I would strongly recommend it. Ah. So I bought an Expert Shield glass screen protector. Expert Shield is a company that guarantees their screen protectors. If you have a problem, you email them. They send you another one. They, they're really good. I've had one of their screen protectors before. Even though the Leica Q2 has Gorilla Glass on it, which I would have expected is strong enough, um, I do wear it on a strap that goes over my chest. And if I'm wearing something with a zipper or buttons, then it could get scratched. And, you know, for a camera of that price, I figured I'd spend the 16 pounds to get a screen protector rather than the 30 pounds for Leica who sells their screen protector. I don't know which brand it is. Um, uh, on the Fujifilm cameras, the LCD covers plastic, and it's always looked to me like it's just not sturdy enough. Um, what I found is with these glass screen protectors, they're also easy to put on. They're not like the the film ones where you get lots of bubbles. The glass, it kind of just you clean it off, it kind of just falls on, and and it's like static electricity that holds it. So I've always been um, really happy with these glass screen protectors. So protect your LCD. It'll prevent you from having to pay for a repair. And if you do resell cameras to get something new, then it has a lot more value. And I'm assuming that the one you bought is specifically sized for your camera. You have to make sure you get you one. You have to make sure, yes. Um, the Leica Q2 is the same size as the Leica M10. Uh, this brand is selling it as the Leica Q2. On Leica website, they say that it's for the M10 or the Q or the Q2. Um, okay. But yes, they're all different sizes. There's not a big difference in LCD size. It could be, you know, a, a centimeter, bigger or smaller maximum, but mm -hmm. you don't want something that's too big or too small because then it's just going to fall off or it's not going to protect the whole screen. Exactly. All okay. right. Okay. Merry Christmas and until January. Happy holidays, everybody. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.